Well, welcome everybody. Would you please open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. And what a blessing. You know, I want to continually highlight and praise God for the plurality of elders and elder candidates that he's given our church. And one of the practical ways you experience that is, is in the preaching ministry. Um, you know, have you ever stopped to think for such a small church, we're wonderfully blessed to have such gifted preachers and teachers in, in our church. I'm so very thankful for the sermons Eric and Alan preached over the last two Sundays. Eric's sermon about the church at Sardis reminded us that it's not our public reputation for being spiritual that counts for anything, but a Christ-purchased and grace-given identity and new life that lives to lovingly obey God. That's what brings him glory. Alan, in his church, in his message about the church at Philadelphia, reminded us of what a good shepherd Jesus is and how he securely keeps those he saves. And we just sang about that. He holds us fast. So can we just thank Alan and Eric for, for their serving us so, so well. Um, you guys, we so long for our church to be built on the preaching of God's word and not on the man doing the preaching. Um, and so, we're, so that's, that's our vision and goal. It's, it's actually the goal of scripture. It's what God calls us to do and be. Well, there's another man that's pretty dear to us. His name's Hugh Robotham. <clears throat> and Hugh was actually supposed to preach this morning. Um, he was going to finish the letters to the churches and preach on the letter to Laodicea this morning. But as you know, Hugh's been going through some physical health issues. And um, thankfully, he's, he's uh, improving. And he's here with us this morning, so I'm so thankful for that. But <clears throat> it just wasn't going to work out that he could be ready. He didn't even know if he's going to be able to stand up on today, let alone preach. And um, so we changed the schedule a little bit. And it's because Hugh has such a burden and a heart for, for two things, the message to the church at Laodicea. He just kept telling me, I just, I don't know what it is, but I just have a burden for that text. And he has a love for you. And, and so we just said, well, let's, let's make some adjustments and let's have Hugh preach. So he's going to preach that message on April 3rd, okay? So this week, we're going to look at Revelation 4, and then next week, Revelation 5. Let me ask you this. So I'm going to do a little different introduction than, than we have in the past. Um, have you ever noticed how we look, we tend to look for hope and help by coming up with some kind of alternate reality to help us through painful, fearful, and weary times? Now, just in case you're visiting today, I'm not going to go cosmic or... Uh, Edith, did he say alternate reality? Yeah, well, you, you'll see what I mean here in just a minute. Whether we conjure up those alternate realities in our imaginations, and that would be kind of this thing of, oh man, I'm going through such a hard time here, and if only, right, if only I could be blank, if only I could be married, if only I could have uh, more money, if only I could be more healthy, if only, uh, isn't, you start to see what I'm saying. There's this, this other realm that we wished could maybe be a, a helper or a deliverer or a rescuer of us. Or we put our hope in the possibility that maybe a future reality of happiness might replace my present reality of hopelessness. We hope that a better reality than the one we have 
will give us strength and perseverance and endurance to help overcome whatever challenges we're currently facing. Let me give you a couple examples of that kind of a regard about a kind of a future sense of how maybe a hope, hopeful future reality might affect our current reality. Let's say you've been putting in twice as many hours at work than normal and you're exhausted and you're discouraged. Uh, you don't feel like for as much effort as you're putting in at work, the progress seems minimal. Have you ever been there? Uh, you, and and what's, what's really worse is it's causing a huge amount of tension between spouses. Um, the kids are being even more restless and they're, they're just, there just seems to be more disorder in the home. That's a very real reality, isn't it? But you know that a month from now, you have a week vacation plan to spend a few days in Florida. Going to spend a little time with Mickey, you know, because Mickey solves everything, right? And, um, and then you're going to have some time at a wonderful condo overlooking the beach and the beauty of the Gulf of Mexico. Doesn't that future reality of two weeks off help you persevere and endure the challenges you presently are feeling and experiencing in your workplace and in your home? Sad part is, those future realities that we think are going to be so salvific don't really ever live up to the expectations, do they? I probably have gotten more mad at Disney World than I've ever gotten mad anywhere in my life <laughs> because I'm selfish and arrogant, right? That's not, not the fault of Disney World. But um, you might say that the future reality of vacation, so here's a word, rules over the current reality of exhaustion and disappointment. Is that kind of making a little more sense, maybe a little bit more understanding what I mean? Well, let's say you had a diagnosis of terminal pancreatic cancer, and it's causing excruciating pain in your body, and the constant pain is so discouraging and so disorienting. Isn't pain disorienting? We don't think very well when we're hurting a lot. We don't think often very biblically, even more importantly, when we're hurting a lot. And you struggle to have even the will to live another day. That's a very real and painful reality. But then your doctor calls you and he, he says, hey, did you know that the FDA just approved a treatment for terminal pancreatic cancer? And it's been proven to be 100% effective. And, and, and you're eligible for it in about a week from now. Okay, so here we go. So, wow, what would that future reality of a cure for your current hurtful, sick, weary, wanting to give up condition... How would that reality rule over your heart? You see, there's a, see how we, 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 tend to, we tend to interpret life by hoping that there might be a reality that's more influential than the one that we're currently going through. A reality that maybe could be more determinative. I think one of the reasons we get so discouraged about present reality is because we think what we're going through is determinative. Does that make sense? We think it has the last word. So sickness, I have no hope because sickness has the last word. I have no hope because we're on the, I mean, how many of us are going, gosh, are we on the verge of World War III? I mean, what? Oh, it just seems like the current realities, they, they seem to be determinative realities, that there's no escaping them. Isn't there a better reality? Isn't there more a real reality, not just vacations or medicine, not just peace among nations? Is there a better reality that can rule over our current reality? And that's where we're going to go this morning.
with our, with our text. This morning, our text provides people who are experiencing the realities of weariness. So, so don't raise your hand, but who's weary this morning? Hopeless? Weak? Fearful? You're, you're, temp- you're, you're tempted like you've never been tempted recently to give up or give in? There's a sin struggle that seems stronger than your faith. There's a threat um, of persecution. Maybe you're currently experiencing some rejection because you've been sharing the gospel. Loneliness or discouragement. And it's so easy to believe those are the ruling realities. But God wants to give us a ruling reality that if we'll believe it, will give us grace to endure and persevere and overcome and experience victory. Only this ruling reality is not merely something to look forward to. Now, we do have something to look forward to as believers. Amen? Oh, man. What is it going to be like? I was talking to somebody the other day. What is it going to be like when my flesh will be no more? And God's going to give me a glorified body that actually wants to cooperate in worshiping him. You know, that's not bringing me down anymore. And not, oh, my goodness. So we have a beautiful future reality. But the text we're talking about today is not about that day. It's about right now. And, and I, I think you'll see this as, as uh, Revelation 4 unfolds before us this morning. It's not something you have to come up with in your imagination. It's a reality that's taking place at this very second, and then at this second, and then at this second. It's happening right now. It's a reality that will compel us to live lives of increasing surrender, submission, and, and abandoned worship to God. Not just, not just on a Sunday morning, but as a lifestyle. So our main point this morning, as you can see in your notes, is, is this. The more regularly we look to the reality of God ruling over all creation on his throne, the more we will worshipfully persevere and overcome the trials and temptations we're currently experiencing. I, I, I put, so usually I put the main point after an introduction, but I thought this morning, I want you to see the main point, and let's, let's see if the text uh, tells us that. So would you stand this morning? This, Revelation 4 and 5, I want to encourage, you might have life verses. If you ever have life chapters, I want to encourage you to consider Revelation 4 and 5 as life chapters. And let's, let's see why I say that. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And all the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they will never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their golden crowns before the throne. I almost started to sing the hymn upon the glassy sea. Oh my goodness saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Oh, dear God, dear God, dear God, thank you for giving John a bodily experience, it seems, of this, this vision. We thank you that through John, you've given us a biblical experience to where this door is open for all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And God, please, from this day forward, help us regularly look into that door. Help us to regularly hear the voice of Jesus saying, hey, come up here and look and see who's seated on the throne. Because, oh Lord, that's the ruling reality that will give us grace to overcome every tribulation and temptation we may face. To you be the glory, to this precious church family be the joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So let's do some application right away. What reality is currently ruling over your heart this morning? Oh, this is where I wish I could just talk heart to heart with you. Is it the reality of your trials or the reality of God seated on his throne? Whatever reality is ruling your heart will determine whether you feel hopeless or helpless, hopeful or helpless, whether you move forward in endurance or whether you give up in exhaustion, whether you are led by faith or by fear, whether you're overwhelmed or overcoming, whether you worry or worship. And we need to see our first point this morning. We need to regularly see God on his throne. And we see that in Revelation 4, 1 and 2. And I, I just constantly want to make sure I'm giving you... It, Revelation is just... I think sometimes we can get really bogged down in Revelation because we just start focusing on the, on the minute parts of Revelation. I love, I love that. God, save our kids, please. Call them to your throne of grace. 
we can get bogged down in the, the minute details of Revelation and kind of lose kind of the big picture of what's going on here. This is so masterfully written, this book. Of course, it's given to us by inspiration of God. It starts with the vision of the glorious Christ in chapter 1 and how we need to regularly see a vision of the glorious Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, seeing Christ more clearly helps us see our hearts more clearly and it helps us be more convicted in a hopeful way. It gives us grace for repentance to see him more clearly. It gives us hope that we can change. It gives us a, a, a reminder that the Spirit really is at work in God's people. And so a vision of Christ gives us a more clear vision of the condition of our hearts and of our churches. And we regularly hear the call in, in those letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 to be an overcomer to him or her who overcomes, to him or her that overcomes, overcomes tribulation, overcomes temptation, to be more than a conqueror through Christ who loves us. We, we keep hearing that resonating and resonating but this is where, I don't know about you, guys, I just look in the mirror and I just see such immaturity. I want to grow. When, when do I get to grow up as a Christian? I still feel like I'm five years old in so many ways. And, and I ask myself the question, Lord, these are major issues going on in the hearts of believers. I've got major issues going on in my heart. And it's really, really hard to see. The, the, the invitation or the call or the command to overcome seems more impossible than inviting. Sometimes you feel that way. Because you're more aware of your sin and the habitual sins that you struggle to overcome. You're, 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 you feel paralyzed with what's going on in the world. And Lord, how can I be an overcomer? Well, thank God being an overcomer doesn't depend on you, <laughs> right? It's not up to you. Uh, how, can I, how can I overcome my pride in these things, which is really just thinking too much of myself? I mean, pride and unbelief, those are, my, those are two enemies for me, and I think they probably are for you. How can I overcome my pride because I think so much of me, but oh God, my faith is so weak. How can I overcome my unbelief because I think too little of you. How do we overcome? How does a church overcome who's left their first love? How does a church overcome who's given in to false teaching? Who's been delivered? Um, who, who, um, of, who's been given over to immorality and idolatry and tolerating evil? Remember these themes of the churches. Uh, what's a church to do who needs to wake up from being spiritually dead or lukewarm, as Hugh will preach on the third, and not give up or give in to pain and persecution uh, like Smyrna and Philadelphia had to do? They were doing well, but God, it's, it's God saying, you're doing well, but it's going to get harder <laughs> to him who overcomes. How? How can we overcome? Well, the answer is that we need a very real and ruling vision of God, a clear and controlling vision of God to see God as all-powerful and all-satisfying, to see God as all-sufficient and all-sovereign. We need a vision of God that humbles our pride and, and, and gives us growing faith in Christ and his finished work. And guess where all that vision is located? Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Do you see the structure of the book? How do I overcome? Let's, let's go to the throne. Let's go to the throne. This is what, you know, 
sometimes we preach to the choir. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for valuing, valuing the gathering of the local church. Do you know one of the reasons God calls us to regularly meet together is because we need help. Sometimes we need somebody to escort us to the throne room again. Because I just get, I just get my problems like this. It's, it's like I just feel blinded by my sins and suffering. And sometimes I need somebody to take me by the hand and to help me see the glories of God on his throne. Because that's going to give me the grace I need to have faith, perseverance, and endurance, and hope that God is even at this second working all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that vision of God sovereignly seated on his throne will carry us through wars and rumors of wars, persecution, famine, fallenness, satanic attack, false religions, dictatorial governments, and judgments that we're going to learn about in Revelation 6 through 20. So again, see how the book is structured. Vision of God. That's going to help churches overcome. And then when we get into all of the stuff about the bowls and trumpets and judgments, you know what's going to bring us through victoriously all of that? The vision of God on his throne and the lamb who was slain. That's what will bring us through. And that's a place that I'm going to invite you to say, amen. Amen. We need to see that God is in complete control of his creation. It might seem that the enemies of God are winning, that Christians are being persecuted, they're being imprisoned, they're being martyred. Tragedy and trial and turmoil are just rampant. And let's just use Revelation words. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet seem to have the upper hand. But John's vision reveals that appearances can be deceiving, can't they? And I think Satan loves to actually use that to deceive us, that that. that his work, his evil, the sins of people have the final say. Our current experience of reality does not determine our future. Our current experience of reality does not determine our future. History is not determined by political powers or military might. Amen. President Putin. Amen. I talk big behind a pulpit, but I wonder if I would say that to him. I think I would say it to his face. <laughs> History is in the hands of God who gave his only begotten son to save us from our worst problem and that's our sin and the judgment our sin deserves. What John discovered is that there are two worlds, two realities. One's earthly and visible um, and so that's what we kind of tend to live by and we, we just get stuck in the earthly and the visible. The other is heavenly and invisible and yet becomes visible in scripture. Oh, how we need the word, how we need the word. So this is the beauty and power of chapter four. So here we go. After this, the vision, uh, uh, chapter four unfolds with this. After the vision, it's not a chronology of future history. This is just saying, this is the chronology of the visions that are taking place. I looked and saw a door standing open in heaven. And let's, let's be reminded that that door is just not open to everyone. It's open to those who have placed their faith in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for their sins. Oh, what grace. Undeserved grace. Undeserved mercy. What are you waiting for? Come to him. He'll give you salvation as a gift. He'll give you the grace to turn away from your evil ways and your self-centered life and turn to him in faith, trusting that Jesus paid it all. 
All to him we owe and giving you his Holy Spirit so that you have the power to live in a life that is worthy and obedient to Christ. He paid for that door to be open and let's never, let's never shrink back from praising him for that open door. And he's hearing the voice that was speaking to him at the very beginning, like a trumpet. This is the voice of Jesus saying, hey, come up here. You're weary and discouraged and defeated and afraid. Come up here. There's something I want to show you. I love it. I love it. 11 times in 11 verses, the word throne is used, pointing us to the one sovereignly seated on that throne, reigning upon that throne. And as we're going to see The throne is at the center of this vision. It's the foundation of everything else. What's supposed to happen and is happening in this throne room is that all of life revolves around God on his throne. That's good news for us, isn't it? So much of my life seems discombobulated and upside down and inside out. Everything in his dominion is revolving around his throne for his glory. And he will determine for your godly good all that you're facing. God can do no other. He is committed to your godly good. He loves you. So what may seem like it's just all this stuff, I mean, picture like in space, no gravity and everything's just floating around aimlessly. That's what sometimes our life feels like. Not when you look at the throne. No, there's not a single molecule that's running around aimlessly. They're all bowing down to serve him who is seated there. He speaks of heaven. And so when you think about this, isn't that thank God for the the future hope we have of heaven. But this is not merely the place you're going to go one day if you're a Christian. Remember, heaven isn't for everyone either. It's only for those who have repented from their sin and placed saving faith in Jesus. You don't, death is not your ticket to heaven. Faith in Christ's death is your ticket to heaven. And we'd love to talk with you if you have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ. This is our ultimate reality. This is the ruling reality over our current trials and temptations. This present and eternal reality is more influential and satisfying and worship-inspiring and obedience-empowering and mission-sustaining. And God will give us all the grace we need to walk with him through it. Second point, so we need to regularly see that God is almighty, not just to see him on his throne, but to see that he's almighty on his throne. So did you notice that John doesn't give us a physical description of God? Did you notice that? We got some kind of descriptions of Jesus, right, in the, in the first chapter of not what he looks like, but what Jesus is like in terms of his wisdom and blazing laser-like eyes and all of these things. But he doesn't give us a physical description of God. God is a spirit. John is is following very clearly here, avoiding making an image out of God. Our creator, precious ones, is not a creature. And and I think one of our problems, and one one of the problems of churches that don't, don't let the word do God's work, that don't devote themselves to the teaching and preaching and reading and praying and singing of the word, is that we we our ideas of God will just automatically become small 
and we tend to look at him more as a creature than the creator. He is no creature. He is the creator. So he's, he's avoiding making an idol or an image out of God so that we won't think too small of God. This is gonna help us ever grow in thinking bigger and bigger and more biblically about God. God's not gonna grow, but our estimation and our knowledge and our love and adoration of him will grow. God uses the book of Revelation to pastor us toward a vision of seeing God in his transcendent and ruling glory. So John describes what he sees coming from the throne and is happening around the throne to highlight that God is all sovereign, all ruling, almighty, all holy God. Let's take a peek because we've been invited into this room. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to note John's repeated use of the word like or the appearance of. So meaning, you know, God's not looking like these things. There's going to be some pretty wild descriptions here that we're going to look at in a second. So it starts off with Jasper and Carnelian. The Carnelian, another word for the Carnelian is Sardius. These are two reddish-colored precious gems. The, the jasper probably symbolizes, this is just trying to kind of put a conglomeration of what different theologians and scholars have dug back out of the Old Testament. Remember, we're, Revelation is, is, is never going to be understood clearly unless we're, we're constantly going back to the Old Testament it points to. That helps define terminology for us. In, in terms of interpreting Revelation biblically according to what it meant at that time for those seven churches and how to apply it in our time. So the Carnelian, so the, the Jasper, they think, is, is symbolizing God's holiness and glory. The Carnelian, which is a deep reddish-colored gemstone, looks, it, it's, it's been said to look like a fire smoldering inside the stone. Isn't that something? And may symbolize God's holiness and the righteous judgment that our sin deserves. But also, it's interesting, both stones are in the high priest's breastplate, symbolizing that this holy and almighty God, this transcendent God, in his transcendence is also an imminent God. God carries people, God carries you on his heart. That's essentially what the breastplate symbolizes. He, there was the 12 tribes of Israel that were all represented by a stone on the, on the heart of the high priest. God's carrying you on his heart. We don't deserve that. We deserve the righteous judgment that, that the, the carnelian stone might be representing. And yet God satisfies his justice through an innocent sacrifice. And because of that, he carries those who trust him on his heart. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful reminder. There's a rainbow, and yet with this appearance of an emerald, it's a promise that God is merciful and he will triumph over justice, not because he's ignoring justice or denying justice. The reason mercy triumphs over justice is because justice is satisfied. God cannot wink at sin. We will all be held accountable for every sinful thought and evil deed. God just doesn't say, oh, okay, you're forgiven. That's no satisfaction of justice. A price has to be paid. And aren't we glad that Jesus paid it all? We're so glad about that. And so this, the, the picture of the rainbow, you remember the judgment has fallen. And now that judgment has been satisfied in an Old Covenant, Old Testament sense, there's the promise of everlasting mercy. 
how much better that rainbow set in emerald is about what Jesus has done for his people, for sinners like you and me. But the focus really is not on the stones, but how the light of God's presence is being seen through them. And let's remember what kind of light this is. This is, you might just write this down in your notes. This is from 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. And and it says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And then the text ends with, Amen. Amen. You ever hear these stories of near-death experiences? And, and as you listen to the person, there is no hint that they have come to a saving knowledge of Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. But they'll talk about this. Come to the light. You ever hear that? You know what I want to say? You're not ready for the light. It's a light that's unapproachable. If you come to the light without Christ as your mediator, you will spend the rest of eternity in in the judgment your sins deserved. Come to the light. I think if if, if that happens, I don't even, who knows if that even happens. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I would think that probably there's a satanic voice involved in that. Oh, come to the light. Die without Jesus. Well, that's the light that's being spoken about here. So this is, I'm just going to quote. I'm not, I love the smart guys. Uh, I don't know anything about, I flunk science and chemistry and biology and all those things. So here's what I heard. (laughs) Sir Isaac Newton was in his room at Trinity College in Cambridge and through a narrow slit in the, sh- in the shutters over his window came a- the white light of the sun. And it struck a glass prism on his desk. And he noticed that this one light was, comp- was a complex, I love this phrase, was a complex unity of many colors. I think that's what's happening in the throne room. I think the light of the glory of God if, 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 if it could be dissected, it's going to be seen in a multitude of divine qualities and characteristics, all speaking of his glory and all reasons why we don't need to fear and why we can persevere. He's holy and sovereign. What is that light coming through? And it's, it's, it's being dispersed in these prisms. These jewels are describing these things. It's, it's his holiness. It's his sovereignty. It's his wrath. It's his mercy. It's his justice. Also coming from the throne were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Like the day the law was given on Mount Sinai, people were frightened. Listen, do you, do you, we got to kind of stop and think. Uh, the atomic bomb wasn't yet invented when, when Moses went to Mount Sinai to receive the law, right? Man hadn't invented weapons of mass destruction yet. There were no big booms going on. The big booms were God coming down and expressing his holy presence and how unapproachable he is 
if you're just going to try to approach him on the basis of your own works or, or you think that you don't need a savior and you're just going to just saunter into heaven one day. Thunder and lightning are coming with the giving of the law and it, it freaked the people out. And I think we need some good freaking out sometimes as believers. They freaked the people out and they literally said, don't, we don't want God to speak to us. Something, this is right. They are getting a right understanding. They're saying, Moses, would you speak to us? Look what they're doing. They're realizing this God is holy and I'm sinful and I deserve every punishment my sins, the, the sins that I've committed deserve. Oh, Moses, would you be our mediator? Moses, would you be the go-between? And God says, I have a better person than Moses in mind. And his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord of Lords. So that's this, this thunder and lightning are reminding us both of the righteousness and the mercy of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. There was a bronze basin before the temple that was for cleansing for the priests. After they, they would offer up the blood sacrifice, and now they're going to move into the holy place of God. They, they would have to wash their hands and feet. So this may be, and it was actually spoken of as the sea, I think in First or Second Kings. I can't remember. Um, but it was called the sea. So that may be some sense that, that to come before the Lord, to have intimacy before the Lord. Um, I would say we need a constant washing of the water of the word. How intimate are you with Jesus when you're distant from his word? It's, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. We need a daily walk with him in his word. And the more you know him, the more you love him the more you realize how much he loves you. But I think this is more likely a reminder that the sea and the ocean throughout the Old Testament was a, an expression of chaos and disorder and destruction and evil. The Israelites were not sailing type folk. <laughs> the, the, the ocean and the sea freaked them out. They were not comfortable on the high seas. They were fearful of them because they represented evil and destruction. But this sea, so here we are in the throne, and I want you to be thinking of Putin and... Oh, I can never pronounce the Chinese premier's name. Chi Ling Ping. I don't mean to be disrespectful. But anyway, the Chinese leader, the Iranian leader. I want you to be thinking about those guys. I want you to be thinking even about the upside down government we have right now. It just, just seems like it can't legislate immorality fast enough. This sea is as calm as glass. President Putin, your rule is coming to an end. You better repent. Chinese Premier, your rule is coming to an end. President Biden, your rule is coming to an end. And I'm, I'm not wanting a West Texas response to that. I want a Republican response to that. God save the president. Please. Please. All of this is a picture that God conquers every adversary, every enemy of his people. There's no chaos in the throne room. 
And this is the ruling reality we have to come back to every time you walk, watch Fox News or, or go through Prager University or whatever your thing is, you know, and, and you're just, because we freak out, but not freaking out about the magnificence of God, freaking out about thinking that our current reality is a determinative reality, and it's not. The throne room is the determinative reality that God wants us to pay attention to. So get this, this is just one other thought. So Jesus, the wind and the weaves, the, <laughs> the wind and the weaves. I've been thinking about getting a weave. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I deserve that. I deserve that. The wind and the waves are doing more than just freaking out the disciples. It was a picture of the war. And when Jesus says, peace, be still, it wasn't just to comfort his disciples. It was to be a lasting message to every believer that chaos and destruction and disorder will be no more. 24, so there's, there's things happening around the throne. Okay, we got to, oh, this is, praise God, we're gonna have time to sing. Um, there's figures around the throne, these 24 elders. And I would just put there, if you've taken notes, I'd just put there, this is the church triumphant. Remember how we were, we were wondering if we're the churches in, in chapters two and three, and we've got all these issues we're facing and, we're, and God's calling us to overcome. And he says, here's the way you overcome fresh and regular visions of God on his throne. Um, God, could it really be? Could you give us some examples that really believers, weak and sinful and fearful believers like us could really be overcomers. And God says, yeah, look in here. <laughs> I think that's what's happening. Yes, let me give you some evidence of how I give grace to overcome. How the church in Jesus Christ is a church triumphant. It's a church triumphant. Both past, present, and future. Some people think, oh, are these angels? And there's a lot more angel terminology to come. And there's a big debate there. It could be. But these elders have white robes and crowns. These are garments that are given to believers who overcome. Because, not because they trusted in their works. They, they trusted in the work of him who saved us. They're overcomers. They were as goofball, sinful, weak, and messy as you and me. Isn't that what we learned in Hebrews 11? The hall of faith. And we've made, oh, these are great superstars. They're not superstars. They were needy, sinful believers who needed the mercy of God and received the mercy of God. Oh, man. So the 24, I think it's, it's representing the entire community of the redeemed. Both the redeemed in the Old Testament of those who had put their faith in the coming of the Messiah and the redeemed in the New Testament who looked back and put their faith in the Messiah who has come. That were probably representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. But there was also another 24. Remember, Revelation is just seeped in symbolism that we need to attach to other scripture. So there's, there's a 24 number used in the Old Testament and it spoke of the 24 divisions of priests and musicians that served the Lord in the temple so that there could be 24 hour worship. That sounds a little bit like what the Christian life is supposed to be, isn't it? I, I ask God, Lord, could, man, 
I, I want to worship you. I, I'd love to, for you to give me dreams about Jesus so that maybe even in my sleep, my heart could bow down and worship you. My sleep can be as messed up as my waking hours, you know. I just, it's a 24-hour worship. So before and behind and each side of the throne, four living creatures, likely angels, known as seraphim. I'm thinking of that because of Isaiah 6 and the six wings. These creatures have a lot of eyes. <laughs> Did you notice that? And if you're not careful, that sounds just really weird and gross. Now remember, this isn't how literal angels look. This is not how literal angels look. This is what they're representing. This is what they're like. Um, they're full of eyes in front and in back. And you know what? All of those eyes are up close and personal and seeing expansively the greatness of God. Don't you wish you had more eyes? In that sense, <laughs> right? Oh God, what I would give to have more eyes to see you clearly. That's what this... They are seeing, it's, it's essentially they're friends of ours, right? These are angels, but they're like good friends of ours. And they're saying, listen, trust me, I'm seeing him clearly in the throne room. And, and I'm seeing him more expansively here in the throne room. And you can trust him. You can trust him. He's glorious and righteous and powerful and merciful. You can trust him. But it's probably not just representing what they see. It's also probably representing something about God himself. Oh, who feels like God's forgotten him in the room today? That somehow, maybe God's eyes have gotten a little bit discouraged with looking at you and the life you're living. And he's turned his gaze elsewhere. Now, all these eyes are saying, God sees everything. He's numbered the hairs on your head. There's nothing too small that he's not intimately aware of. This is the God of the throne. This is the God of the throne. And it's likely, um, there's all kinds of things talked about, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. I'm not going to go into a ton of that. Um, some thoughts, the lion represent God's kingly nobility. Could, could be. The ox is his power and strength, symbolic of his power and strength. The man is God's wisdom and, and, and the dignity. Uh, the eagle is God's majesty. Could be, could be, but I think there's something more there. The, the number four, have you ever heard of the four corners of the earth from scripture? The number four in Revelation actually speaks of entirety. That there is no part of the world, there's no part of the universe, not one square centimeter that God doesn't declare mine. And I think that's what's going on here. I think these are amazing creatures. They're probably speaking of God's sovereignty over all creation. And then man, God's sovereignty over all mankind. That's probably, I think, pretty Pretty likely that that's, that's a good interpretation of this. Seven torches of fire, lampstand in the temple. We've talked about that representing the seven spirits of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is always attending to whatever it will take to glorify Jesus who glorifies the Father. So as we move to our last point, notice that the 24 elders and the four living beings are creation's choir. These, man, we've got some awesome worship leaders in our church, don't we? But guys, none of us will ever compare. There will be no earthly worship leader that will ever compare to these worship leaders. 
I know that Alan and Eric and Joshua and Josh, they're not just wanting to lead you musically. I know these guys. And I know the prayers they pray and I know the tears that fall down their cheeks because they want more to happen than just melodies on Sunday. They would like to be a living example of someone who has been ushered by Jesus Christ to the throne of grace, to see God in all of his glory and to worship him accordingly. Well, that's essentially what these guys do. These 24 elders and the four living creatures are the ultimate in worship leaders and we will be blessed to follow their example. So here we go. Last point, we need to regularly see that God deserves all of our worship. Because they're constantly seeing Almighty God ruling sovereignly and victoriously on the throne, how do they live? They constantly are seeing him, so what are they doing? They're constantly worshiping him. There's a correlation. The more you see him, the more you worship him. Because they're regularly seeing God Almighty on his throne. What's, what's the heart posture? And, and I'm going to bring this in, body posture too, of their worship. They're face down. They're casting down golden crowns toward God. In ancient days, if a king was conquered by another king, the conquered king would take his crown and cast it down to the one who is the conqueror. Place it at his feet. So I think we could say, seeing God is surrendering to God. I think, what, what, what sin issue or what area of faith, and this, I bet this pertains to everybody in here, if you're a Christian, God's been calling you to do something and you have been so hesitant You've been so fearful. And it's because he's, you're looking at what he's calling you to do rather than looking at him. Seeing him is surrendering to him. That's, I think that's what's happening here. A life of worship is a life of submission. It's a life of surrender. It's a life of humility. It's a life of gratitude. The crowns even that God gives us, is that unbelievable? <laughs> I mean, the last thing I should get when I get into heaven is a crown. You know, those elders, when they're seeing this holy, holy, holy God, they're going, oh, this crown, thank you. Thank you for this crown. But the crown that matters is not mine. It's yours. Your crown matters. And I cast mine down in worship to you. We're compelled to worship because of the crown on the Lord's head. This is about the King of Kings. This is ultimate reality. This reality has more victorious and conquering influence than the pain you're experiencing has, than a crazy dictator has, than cancer has, than sin has, than weakness has, than temptation has, than brokenness has, than fear of evangelizing and going in mission has, than shame has, than fear, than money or success. This vision of Almighty God reminds us that God deserves all of our worship and there will forever be a fresh and vibrant and powerful and beautiful reason to worship God forever. And you see it in the holy, holy, holy. You know, some people go, God, heaven is going to be 
don't they have any other songs in the jukebox? <laughs> holy, holy, holy. Well, it's, it's nice. We're going to sing it. It's a really nice, nice hymn. But doesn't it get old? Let me tell you, I'll give you some goofy illustrations and lead you to the throne again. You know, I love my wife. She rocks my world. God uses her to remind me of any human being on the earth. She reminds me to look at the throne as much as anybody. She's, a, she's Irish, did you know? McCann was her last name. I made up this phrase, if anyone can, Jan McCann. <laughs> I know, I just said that just so you, know, so you would argue with me. Um, so on St. Patty's Day, she wore green, right? I don't. I'm not Irish. <laughs> anyway, focus, focus. Um, you guys, Jan's eyes. Oh, my gosh. And I just, it was a picture first. I saw her in a picture. And you know what I wanted to say? Lovely. 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 And sweetheart, I have countless reasons to say that every day because of the work of God's grace in your life. And I want to study you better. I want to, I want to be a good student in the University of Jan so that I can see God's grace at work in your life and so that I can serve the Lord by serving you. It's always happening. If I look, if I look, she just gets lovelier. How about Adeline and Tatum, my grandgirls? How about my grandgirls? You guys. <laughs> if you got two hours after church, I have, a, I have pictures, right? <laughs> oh. So I see there's Tatum. We call her Tatie and Adeline. Tatie and Adeline. And oh my gosh, I mean, they could you be, could you two be any more gorgeous? Cutie, cutie, cutie. That's, I, I, I have to say it again and again. I, I'm away from them for 15 minutes and then I see them again. Cutie, cutie, cutie. Worship team, would you come please? How much more the God of light that's unapproachable, that, that magnifies his glory in a complex unity of ways. Unity, com I don't know, you see what I'm trying to say. A God who, is, who we can never exhaust the depths of his love. That, that every time you look at him afresh, you're totally other than us. You're righteous, you're holy, you're merciful, you're, you're, you're kind, you're compassionate, you're patient. Oh, holy, holy, holy. We bow down again. We cast down our crowns again. And we look up again. Oh, I'm seeing something new and fresh and sweet. Holy, holy, holy. That's the ruling vision from the throne. And that's going to give us grace to endure and persevere every painful, persecuting, troubling, tempting reality we're going through this morning. We just stand and let's worship this God.